got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 15. For the next two weeks, we are going to be in Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 16. And in those two chapters, what I hope to highlight for us and what I hope that God would help us to see and not only see and understand, but taste and experience is something of the tenacity of God's character, something of the tenacity of God's grace, something of the tenacity of what we talk about as the gospel. When we, when we talk about God, it, it's not often that the word tenacious is used in conjunction with God. I mean, I've got a number of systematic theologies of the office. I, I like to read them. I like to study them. I'm appreciative uh, of the grace and the gift that God has given the theologians throughout the centuries who have written these things down for us. But yet have I stumbled upon a systematic theology that they begins to describe the attributes of God as you see them in Scripture and use the word tenacious. I, I've yet to see it. But something of the story of Scripture speaks very clearly and very boldly and very loudly, to the tenacity of God, to the tenacity of his person. And Webster's actually defines tenacity as not readily letting go of or giving up of or being separated from an object that one holds, a position or a principle. It's described of a person who is persisting in a particular existence or in a course of action. And nowhere in the scriptures do one of the writers use the word tenacious when talking about God. But when we understand the story of scripture and when we understand God's role in the story of scripture and the character of God as displayed in the story of scripture, I don't know if a better word is used to describe him than tenacious. If he is not persistent, never readily letting go of, giving up of, or being separated from an object, a position, or a principle, it's got to be God. And it would stand to reason that if tenacity is an attribute or a characteristic that's displayed in the character of God, then the things that proceed from God should display or hold in some measure that same characteristic of him. Something of God's grace makes it tenacious because it comes from God. Tenacity is one of the things that I I cherish the most and love the most about my kids. I love how tenacious my kids are. And it would make sense that there would be a tenacity in my kids having been created in the image of God, though marred and though broken because of sin. Something of his character and something of his nature is in there being reflected in the personality that he's given them. And I absolutely, absolutely adore and love the tenacity of my kids. There is absolutely no quit in either one of my kids. When they get hold of something, an object or a principle or an idea or an accomplishment, there is no quit in either one of them. There is no quit. They will do harm to their body. They will do harm to their parents. They will do harm to the people around them in an effort to accomplish what it is that they have grabbed a hold of. I mean, I love it about them. They get it from their mama. They don't, (laughs) you know, I'm tenacious to a degree, but not like their mama, and not like either one of them. I mean, just this past week while we were in California, I got to see, a, I get a sense of it. I mean, I can tell you story after story of the tenacity of my kids and my, my wife, but 
we're not here for that. But while we were in California, this is one of my favorite ones. I, I just loved this because, again, it reminded me of, of why I adore this in them. But we, we go hiking. Aaron and Jude and I go hiking in the Sierra Madre Mountains. We had a few hours to kill them. My, my sister lives right at the base of the mountains. So we went hiking. And in the middle of this valley in the Sierra Madres, there was a river that ran through it. And, and there were rocks. And, and the stream was pretty strong. And there were a couple of young adults, you know, uh, walking through the river, traversing upstream over the rocks with big climbing sticks and gear appropriate for the expedition. And as I turn around, I see my wife and my son climbing into the bottom of the river, beginning to walk out. My son doesn't swim. He's five years old. He doesn't swim. But he saw people walking through the river and climbing up rocks and going upstream through the river to the mouth of this river where waterfalls were coming down. And he's just going to do it doesn't swim, but begins to walk out into the middle of this river that out in the middle of it is about this high on him. And then I turn around and I see my wife walking out there in a skirt, big pregnant belly, wandering out. Here I am on the shore of the river just with the phone taking a picture. It's like, you know, (laughs) whatever. And, And for the next bit of time, the two of them, five years old and 30 something weeks pregnant, are walking over these rocks and through this river upstream to get to the waterfalls. There was, there was no quit in either one of them. He couldn't even swim, fall off the rock as he did. He doesn't quit. There was something in him that had in his mind an objective that he was going to accomplish. And when they get that objective in their mind, they get that object in their focus. There's no quit in them. And I love this about them. And, and it was reminded again this week how it reflects something of our creator. There's something about God. There's something about his character that is unbelievably unparalleled in its tenacity. And over the next couple of weeks, when we look in Acts chapter 15 and 16, what I hope for you to see through through our reading and talking, and and what I hope for you not only to see and know, but then to taste, to derive courage from, and to derive comfort from, is an understanding of the tenaciousness of God. And not just of the tenaciousness of God. That's a tongue twister. Say that a few times. Not just the tenaciousness of God, the tenacity of God, but the tenaciousness of that which comes from him. The tenaciousness of his grace. The tenaciousness of his gospel. We need to see this. We need to take courage from this. And we need to take comfort from this. And as we do, and as we get started, let me do something for us, because as I talk for the next two weeks, I'm going to interchange some words. I'm going to use some words for each other. I'm probably going to interchange while I'm talking God's grace and and the gospel. I'm probably going to talk about the tenacity of God's grace, and I'm going to talk about the tenacity of the gospel, and I'm going to use those words loosely and, and interchangeably. So from the beginning, let me kind of clarify for you what I'm talking about when I talk about the tenacity of God's grace and tenacity of God's gospel and how the story of God's grace and the story of God's gospel throughout all of Scripture reflects for us that characteristic or that attribute that comes from God himself the tenacity of our creator, the tenacity of our savior. You know, from the beginning of scripture, the story works itself out. If you're here very often, you hear us talk about it all the time. That God created us, created humanity to worship him, to find him utterly satisfying, to find him as a sufficient source of life and joy. As he created us and set us on the earth, as we ate, as we drank, as we talked, 
as we worked, all of those things were to drive us upward in worship of a creator God who lovingly created us and provided all that we need for us so that as we were satisfied by the world around us, it rolled up into worship of the one who created those things that we utterly found our satisfaction in him as our provider, as our God, as our king. But scripture says instead of doing that, we believed a, a lie about God. We believe that God was ultimately withholding from us and instead of believing him for who he is and what he said, we've chosen to try to derive that joy and derive that satisfaction from his creation. We've chosen to take the responsibility of directing the affairs of our life upon ourselves and we've sought to put ourselves in the throne where only he is rightfully king and to derive from his creation what only he can ultimately provide for us. In a sense, scripture has said, and we've talked about it often, that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And as Paul said, we have begun to serve and worship the creation instead of the creator. And ultimately, that's an act of treason, of cosmic treason. We talked in the beginning of this series how that's ultimately found us guilty of glory thieving, if that is such a word, of trying to rob the glory that is only due to God, trying to rob that and take that for ourselves and for our rebellion and for our disregard. And for our attempt at removing God from his rightful place, not only in the world, but in our hearts, we stand guilty before God of cosmic treason, of glory thievery, of stealing from him what is only rightfully due him. And because of that, we stand before him guilty. Guilty. And unable to do anything about it. And in his righteousness and in his holiness, And in his justice, God has every good and right reason to punish us for our disregard, for our rebellion, and for our thievery. In his holiness and in his righteousness, not only does God have the right, but his justice demands that he punish our rebellion and our disregard. But yet we're still here, aren't we? We're still breathing, aren't we? He has every right to exact the eternal and holy due punishment for our sin. Each one of us woke up this morning and took a breath. Each one of us was able to get dressed and come here this morning and sing or listen to these songs. What, what, What gives? Well, that's the continued story of God's grace. That's the continued story of God's gospel. That's the continued story of the tenacity of God who in the face of our continual rebellion... And in the face of our continual disregard for who he is, in his wisdom, he made a way for his justice and his righteousness to be satisfied, for his due wrath, his due punishment for our sin and our disregard to be exacted. And what he did is he made a way to exact his righteous justice on someone in your place. In his wisdom, he sent his son Jesus to live the life that we were created to live to live a life of perfect obedience to his law and perfect worship in his heart to God, the life that we were created to live. And then Jesus Christ willingly laid his life down to be crucified in the most brutal of ways on a cross. And on the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed the righteous and just wrath of God for your sin in your place. God did not simply pass over your sin. If God had just passed over sin, then he would not be just. He would not be utterly righteous, but he exhausted his entire wrath upon sin for all time on his son, Jesus, in your place. And Jesus suffered the punishment 
of your sin and died. And for three days, he laid buried in a tomb. And after three days, the power of God, the Holy Spirit of God, the very God of God, raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating his sacrifice in our place for our sin and raising him to the right hand of God the Father where he sits enthroned. And God, in the tenacity of his grace and in the long-suffering of his goodness, has said that for those who, by faith, through grace, place their trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. And there is right standing before God. And there is a promise of an eternal hope, an eternal future in the presence of God. That the punishment had been paid. The price had been exhausted. Jesus had made a way for us to be reconciled to God. That is the grace of God. That is the gospel of God. The good news of the wisdom of God making a way for the love of God to satisfy the justice and righteousness of God without ever compromising any, any of his attributes or character. So for the next two weeks, when I talk about the grace of God or I talk about the gospel of God, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what God has done in our place to make us right before him. That's what I'm talking about. Fair? Clear? Acts chapter 15. We're going to pick up where you were last week. Acts chapter 15 rightfully falls in the middle of the book of Acts. It rightfully is kind of like the hinge that the book swings on because in Acts chapter 15, we get the story of what's often called the Jerusalem Council. It was one of the most defining moments in the history of the church. And it might, it's argued, might be the most defining and important moment post-resurrection and post-Pentecost. What happened at this meeting that's in Acts chapter 15 that Chris started taking us through last week and I'm going to pick up with this week is one of the most important turning points in the history of the church. And Chris did a great job last week setting it up for you. Uh, What was happening was a sect of Pharisees, uh, of Jewish church leaders, uh, had followed and kind of come behind Paul and Barnabas on their missionary travels as Paul and Barnabas would go throughout the region preaching the gospel and people would begin to get saved. They would preach the good news of God's grace and people would actually believe God's good news and would be resurrected from a, a life of sin and death before God to a new life of freedom and joy and satisfaction in God, that these guys would kind of come in behind Paul and Barnabas and begin to tell people that that was great. You can actually believe on Jesus as the Messiah if that belief then produces a more righteous and devout adherence to God's law. You can't really be saved completely until you then do these things. And they begin to come behind these new converts and tell them that their belief in Jesus was only part of the process. That what they were actually believing was only part of what they had to actually believe and do. And they were insisting that if these new believers not only just believed in Jesus, but then were, had to be circumcised according to Jewish law and observed Jewish ceremonial rules, and at that point, they could actually be part of the church. They could actually be Christians. And in Acts chapter 15, um, verse 2, Luke recorded that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I love the use of language. No, no small dissension. No small debate. And there was, there was a lot at stake. I mean, there was a lot at stake in what was going on here. And, and the, the pressure and the mounting reality of what was going on produced this discussion and this debate. I mean, would there ultimately then be one church for Jewish believers and another church for Gentile believers? I mean, this is what's at stake. 
Can the Gentile believers believe in Jesus, but then we have to have a church for them with certain rules, and then the Jewish people can believe in Jesus, and there's certain rules for them, so we've actually now produced a Gentile church and a Jewish church. I mean, there was, there was a whole lot at stake. And most importantly, what was at stake was the essential aspect and nature and truthfulness of the gospel. It was the good news that was at stake. It was the story of God's grace and the effectiveness and sufficiency of God's grace and Jesus' work on our behalf. That was on the table. Was God's grace bound by Jewish law and tradition, or was it free? Was God's grace by faith alone, or was it faith in Jesus plus obedience to Jewish law? Faith in Jesus plus circumcision. That's what was on the table, and so the leaders of the church got together. They said, we've got to deal with this. We've got to answer these questions once and for all. And so they all gathered in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, they were going to debate this issue. What, what, what's the deal? How do we handle these Gentile believers from other uh, ethnicities and other cultures coming in and, and believing in the good news? What do they have to do? Do they need to do anything? Is, is this enough? Or, or, or how do we now be a church? How do we now be a people? We need, to, we need to figure this out. That was the big question. Was what Jesus accomplished on the cross sufficient, complete, or was it not? Was it Jesus plus something else equals right standing before God, or was it not? The Judaizers who gathered in Jerusalem said Jesus could be the Messiah as long as belief in him produced perfect and more passionate obedience to the law. That was okay. Jesus could fit into the equation as long as right adherence to the law actually came out of that. Jesus plus the law then gave you right standing before God, but did Jesus come to make us better keepers of the law? Was that his purpose in coming? That was on the table. They were trying to hammer out once for all for the church. What really was the point of Jesus coming? Was he coming and living in our place and dying in our place? And did God raise him from the dead to make us a better keeper of the law? To make us more moral people? To make us more empowered than to do the law that we never have been able to actually accomplish on our own? Is is that why Jesus came? And verse 7 says, after much debate, and oh man, I hope that when we get to eternity, God lets us go back and see how this all played out. I mean, that is one of my great hopes. I have no guarantee that God's going to let us do that. I really wish he'll sit us down one day in eternity with a sanctified movie theater and we can just sit and watch the Bible play out. I mean, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in this meeting. After much debate, verse 7 says, Peter stood up. And Peter evidently preached the paint off the walls. And last week, Chris stood up. And we don't have the audio, but I assume that Chris preached the paint off the walls. And he unpacked Peter's answer to the question. Did Jesus come to live in our place and die in our place? And did God raise him from the dead so that we could be better keepers of the law? And the answer that Peter gave and the answer that Chris gave and the answer that scripture gives over and over and over again is absolutely not. Jesus did not come and live and die and be raised from the dead so that we could be better keepers of the law. He didn't come to make us a better, more moral person. He came to keep the law that we could never keep. He came to keep the law in our place. And because he did, by faith in his life and faith in his death and faith in God's resurrection of Jesus from the dead, through grace, we get credit for the law keeping that Jesus did in our place. Jesus came to keep the law for us. Because as Peter said, for centuries, we've never been able to do it. We were never going to be able to do it. But one man did in our place, Jesus. He came to do it for us. And so verse 12 says that after Peter stood up and preached, probably like last week after Chris preached, the assembly fell silent. 
Everybody got quiet. And then Paul and Barnabas stood up. And they began to tell testimonies of how the gospel had been transforming Gentiles all throughout the region. Stories of what God's grace was doing in these Gentile believers. And then as they were done, and I bet Paul took a long time. At just the right time, when Paul probably quit talking, James stood up. James now leading the church in Jerusalem. James now kind of being the first among equals of that church that had been established in the beginning of Acts in Jerusalem. The one in whom all were now kind of deferring to as what's going to be the final word on this. We've pled our case. Peter's preached. The Judaizers have spoke. Paul's given witness and testimony to what God's doing. Okay, now James stands up. What's Jerusalem going to say? What's the church going to say? Are there going to be two? Is there one? What say we on this? And I love this. Verse 19. James says, here's my judgment. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So James says, I agree with Peter. Peter was right. Jesus plus something equals nothing. Jesus plus anything else is actually no gospel at all. It is by faith, through grace, in Jesus alone that saves the Jew, that saves the Gentile. This is my conclusion, and here's what we're going to do. We're not going to burden these new believers any longer. We're not going to lay upon them the responsibility of the law that we have never actually been able to keep ourselves. Jesus kept it in our place. He did what we could not do, and now God credits his obedience to us by faith through grace. That's where the church is going to stand. And then James verified what God was been doing through going back to the Old Testament, back to Amos, and reminding them how the prophets had spoken before and ages ago of what God would do and how his grace and his gospel would work its way through all people and all nations and all places. So the tenacity of the gospel, the no quit, never relenting, never stopping, never letting go of its purpose, never backing down from its opposition, the tenacity of the gospel and tenacity of God's grace, ultimately the tenacity of God himself is seen and is accomplished as it's played out against the backdrop of of theological and ideological opposition. You see, in, in the book of Acts, all the way up to this point, God's purposes and God's plan had been opposed from the outside. People had tried to stop God's Men. They had tried to stop Paul. They had tried to stop Barnabas. They had tried to stop the early church leaders. But this is really the first time that we've got recorded in the book of Acts where the message itself, the gospel itself, has been put on the table. What's going to happen? Has it hit its final obstacle? Has it overcome all that it can overcome? And now, as these men begin to deliberate, The gospel, the grace of God just doesn't have the legs it needs to overcome the ideological opposition that's being brought against it now. And what we see is the tenacity of God's grace up against not only external persecution, but now very internal and ideological persecution. Heresy can only oppose the message of the gospel. It can never overwhelm it. 
the gospel, the good news of God's grace comes from the good God himself, the tenacious God himself. And his goodness and his grace can never be overwhelmed and abolished. It has a tenacity that is unparalleled. And what we need to see is that in the face of such opposition and in the face of such doubt and in the face of such skepticism as went on in this council right here amongst men in the church, God was actually using the opposition to clarify once for all, for all of his people, the depth and the clarity and the power of his good news and his grace. God was using the opposition. He was using the doubt. He was using the skepticism to clarify for the church what he loves and what makes much of him. God was at work and his grace was at work. His tenacity was on display and he was actually using opposition to clarify, to clarify the message that would transform men and women for generations and are transforming men and women even today. And see, here's what I just want us to see briefly in in this, because I know we talked about it last week and we're going to talk more about it through the book of Acts. Because of the tenacity of the gospel and the tenacity of the grace, the tenacity of the message of God's good news as it comes from God himself, you, you can't back down at moments of controversy when the gospel is at stake. When the message of God's grace is at stake, you you can't back down. There's no reason to back down. There's no reason for your knees to knock and for your spine to grow weak and your mouth to grow silent. When the message of God's free grace is at stake, that's where we draw a line in the sand. That's where we come together and that's where we speak. You can't shrink back from controversy when the message of the gospel is at stake. You just can't. Secondly, we need to see that God is often at work in and through the controversy itself to define for his people what he loves and what makes much of him. And and right now there's new controversies, new ideas being promoted throughout the evangelical church world. I'm not going to get into any of them this morning. Those of you who are into that stuff know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe another time we'll pick them apart. But there are new ideas, new controversies that are getting popular, that are gaining steam, that are getting a voice, that are contrary to the clear teaching of the word of God itself. God uses these controversies oftentimes and almost every time, if you go back through church history, to clarify for his people what he really loves. What's really true about who he is. There's nothing to be afraid of. When controversy rises, when it comes to the message of the gospel, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's no heresy, there's no new idea that can overwhelm the message of God's grace. There's no heresy or no idea that can finally take the legs out from under the gospel. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's no reason for his church to cower in fear to somebody with extra initials behind their last name who have a different idea of what God has meant and what the Bible actually says. The gospel, the good news of God's free grace through his person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, can't be overwhelmed. And at the moments where it's threatened, you can't remain silent. God uses those things to clarify for us what really matters. And Chris did a great job last week. He quoted Martin Luther in this. He said, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every position of the truth of God, except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ, 
where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefields besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. God's gospel, God's grace is as tenacious as God himself. And that tenacity here in Acts chapter 15 has prevailed even through ideological, philosophical opposition, ultimately from the church itself. And now that God has actually clarified through this council the message of his gospel, the clarity of his grace, not only for the Jews but for the Gentiles, now the council is going to actually apply it. They've defined it. They've clarified it. Now they're going to actually apply it. And that's what's going to happen next. Look at verse 20. James stands up and he agrees with Peter. Peter's right. Faith alone, grace alone, Jesus alone. That's the message, period. Verse 20. There's a weird word there coming after that. But. Jesus plus nothing. We got to tell him that. But it's a weird word. Hold on to that because we're going to keep going. We should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what's been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Didn't they just decide that there was no baggage to be added to the gospel? I mean, didn't they just say Jesus plus anything equals nothing? But let's write to them to do these four things. Let me keep reading and we're going to try to make sense of it. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Now here's the letter that the church council has written to all the churches now. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. Greetings. Now, notice they started with brothers. It's a nice attitude they've got when they're writing this letter. Brothers to brothers. This is what we're talking about. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So they just said, you know you love Barnabas and Paul. We love them too. They're coming with you. Men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what's been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Verse 30, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. Now, this is important. And understanding what just happened in this letter, you need to understand the response of the church when they got the letter. Look at verse 31. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent to them. But Barnabas and Paul remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So the churches get the letter that's come from the council that James has written. We're not going to burden you anymore beyond the message of faith in Christ, the grace of God alone. But we're going to ask these four things of you. 
So they get the letter and they go, no circumcision. Praise God. Believe it. Believe it. There was much rejoicing in the church. Much encouragement in the church. Because they knew what was going on. They knew what was going on in Jerusalem. They knew coming down from the church was going to be an answer. And they get the letter and they go, no greater burden, no circumcision. Praise God. But what are these four other things? I mean, no no greater burden but these little requests. Are are they not requirements or how, how do they actually work? Well, these four things are actually just application of the grace of God at work in the life of the church. These aren't four requirements that the Gentile believers and the, the, the Gentile churches now have to do so as to be Christians in the church. This is actually pastoral application of the gospel, of the grace of God at work amongst God's people. Because when they actually read it, they read those four things. And how'd they respond? And they were rejoiced. They were encouraged. The church was encouraged and happy when they read the response of Jerusalem and these four things. See, there were four requests. And scholars will say, some will say, three dealt with the ceremonial law and one dealt with immorality in general. Uh, Other scholars will say that because the other three dealt with ceremonial law and because sexual immorality was so rampant in religion and in different cults in the Gentile world that this extra mention of immorality is actually in relation to the temples and to the practices. So they were all dealing with, with idolatry and, and temple practices to some degree. But they were really just four things about how the church was going to deal with life together. It's just a pastoral letter. You see, this new church and these new churches with Gentiles and, and Jews throughout the region, they're going to have to do life together. They're going to get together and have dinner together. Their families are going to spend time together. And they come from wildly different backgrounds and wildly different practices. How then are we going to do this life together in such a way that makes much of who God is and that deals with the sensibilities and the backgrounds of all of these different people? What really matters and what doesn't really matter? And this is what this letter is saying. The first thing it's saying is to you Jewish believers in the churches, you new churches with Gentiles and Jews, you Jewish believers in the church, this side over here, you can't circumcise them. You can't make them follow all of your ceremonial laws. They don't have to do that. Those things are not required to be saved by God's free grace through grace alone. Jesus Christ accomplished all that was necessary. So Jews, don't make them do that. They don't have to do that. But you guys, all of you, you need to understand something. Your Jewish brothers and sisters over here, For centuries and generation after generation, they've observed this ceremonial law as a part of their heritage and their identity. Now, they understand conceptually that their obedience to the law does not earn them anything before God. It's what Jesus did in their place for their sin that makes them right before God. But for their entire life, as part of their identity, they've kept to these particular laws. Now, you don't understand, but when you're walking home from work and you're going to go get dinner for the family or you've got community group that night at your house, and your friends and your Jewish brothers are coming over. You don't understand that when you stop by the market and you buy that meat, they have a really hard time with that. You see, for the Jewish people, the Gentile, what would happen is that they would go to these pagan temples and they would offer sacrifices to all these different gods. And oftentimes animals were involved in the sacrifices. And all kinds of things would happen in those sacrifices. Um, And what would happen is the priest giving a, a nod to 
you know, capitalism and free enterprise, they would take the animal that was sacrificed, butcher it up, take the meat once the sacrifice and worship was done, and take it to the market and sell it in the market. And so these Gentiles would go to the market and there was meat. It's just meat. Whatever it was used for is done. It's just meat hanging on a stick, got flies all over it. They would stop, buy some meat, take it home and have dinner. But for their Jewish brothers and sisters, that was greatly offensive. That was unbelievably offensive because that meat had been used in the worship of idols. That meat had been used in in devotion and sacrifice to, to idols and God's law had forbid them from having anything to do with idolatry. The very beginning of the Ten Commandments, we don't even go into the Levitical law, the idea of doing and eating and using anything that had been used in the worship of idols was so offensive to Jewish people. But now the gospel has said those things don't make you right before God, but these things still identified them as a people. And what James is saying pastorally is, listen, Gentiles, recognize the conscience of your Jewish brothers and sisters. They have a hard time with this thing that you do in your life. It's just meat. Paul's going to argue in 1 Corinthians and Romans that it's morally neutral. It's just meat. There's nothing sinful about it. It's just meat. You can do according to your conscience. Eat it or don't eat it. But listen, for your Jewish brothers, this is unbelievably offensive. So when you get together, hold back on the meat. Just don't, don't go get it. Live responsibly with your brother. What the church is after is a, a unity, a a singular focus on what's essential in the freedom of the gospel and then a unity that's come from that grace and from that freedom that allows the church to live together. And see, what the church is actually asking of the Gentiles is an unbelievably mature life of freedom. You see, when you really understand that it's only the work of Jesus Christ in your place that brings you before God and makes you righteous before God, you then understand when you get that in your mind, but taste it in your heart, the freedom that you have with the way that you live your life. And the ultimate expression of that freedom is laying down a right that you have before God for the sake of the conscience of a brother or sister. That is a highly mature act of freedom. And this is what the church is is actually asking the Gentile believers to do recognize the weakness of your Jewish brother's conscience. It's part of their culture and their history. When they get together, it's hard for them to get past. When you get together with them, do life, just hold back. Hold back. Don't, don't go get the meat. Don't bring it home. This is just tough for them. So what the letter was actually doing was actually working grace into the life of the church. It was actually compelling grace to actually prevail and then be applied and worked its way through the life of this new church. They, they were not going, and this hit me this, this morning as I was thinking about this. Ultimately, this council, this Jerusalem council, was not going to settle for two separate churches. They were not going to allow 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning to be the most segregated hour of the week. They weren't going to allow it. They weren't going to stand for it. God's gospel was big enough, great enough, deep enough, and ultimately tenacious enough to not only deal with heresy, but to deal with cultural differences. And they were not going to allow the church to operate with that way. The gospel was bigger than that. They needed to hold fast the affirmation of the free grace through Jesus, but they needed to have charity. They needed to have charity with one another and how that grace was applied and how they lived that out. And so the gospel, so the council affirmed that. 
There could be no attachments to the gospel. Nothing else makes you right before God. But that particular message, there needs to be unity and sensitivity to the sensibilities of people you love. So one commentator said, as they embrace, embrace the freedom of grace, they then lived in that freedom for the sake of the unity of the church. And when that happens, something is produced. Something is compelled. Something comes out of the life of that church that's unstoppable. From a church that lives grounded in the centrality of the gospel message and then is driven by the grace that message speaks of and provides. This commentator was saying there is an unstoppable expansion that happens not only in Acts, but in the church today. This truly is gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded living. And when this happens, when, when we become a people who so taste the grace of God, who, whose hearts increasingly on a day-in and day-out basis are so centered on the gospel of God and driven by the grace of God, such to the fact that we're looking for opportunities to lay down our freedoms for the sake of our brothers and sisters and their consciences. When we're not bent on proving to our brothers and sisters the freedom they should be living in. You see, I'm going to avoid for the sake of time getting on a rant about how the church throughout at least this culture has continued to keep people in bondage to adding things to the gospel. I mean, we get that, right? That's a message you've heard over and over again if you've been in the church. The church has been guilty of saying, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Now don't do this. If you do this, then you must not believe that. If you do that, that means you don't really trust this. To be a Christian means that you can give some type of assent to this message, but then you need to do this thing. The church has been so guilty of that. I'm not gonna rant about that. The thing that I think we struggle with the most is the other side. I think we don't struggle with the Jewish problem. We struggle with the Gentile problem. I think some of us have tasted the good news of God's grace, and I praise God that a lot of you don't come from religious backgrounds. And so when you've heard the gospel, you've taken it in, you've given your life to it, and you're tasting the grace of God and the freedom of God and really realizing that so many things in this world ultimately in and of themselves are morally neutral. You realize there really isn't Christian music. Do you get that? It's just music. Just music. Nothing in it gives it any intrinsic value as Christian or not. Really. There's no Christian mechanic. Even if there's a fish next to his name in the yellow pages. Really. It's just mechanics. But but here's what's happened. Some of us have tasted the grace and, and we're realizing what that means for how we live. And then we think it's our duty to look at our religious brothers and sisters, our, our Jewish brothers and sisters and go, look, you're missing it. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this full on. And you just need to get on board with it. I get it. You grew up for generations thinking that walking into a grocery store that sold wine was a sin. The mere presence of it means we must not believe the good news of Jesus Christ. I get it. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to go buy a case of it. And I'm coming over to your house. And we're going to invite enough people over. We're going to crack it open and we're going to drink it. And you're going to get over yourself. Because the Bible says that drunkenness is a sin. We're going to drink it right to that line. And you're going to get used to it. That's the problem we, we struggle with. I mean, if we're guilty of anything here, it, it's that. This letter goes to both. It goes to both. 
Religious people, take your baggage off these other people. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to follow all the rules. They don't need to wear khakis and polo shirts. They don't need to listen to the Christian radio station. They don't, they don't need to do that. The rest of you, man, give care and sensibility to your brother's conscience. For them, they believe that doing some of these things is a sin before God. And you know what? They're going to be held accountable to their conscience before God. Be sensible. What we're after is unity in what matters. Jesus plus anything means nothing. Faith alone through grace alone is what transforms and resurrects a soul that apart from that is hostile before God and dead in sin and trespasses. And everything else, there's liberty. There's charity. That's what this letter is getting after. And we're going to run out of time here in a second. But we're going to take two weeks on these chapters, so I'm fine with that. If there's anything that we've got to be careful with, it's, it's this. And what you'll see if you, if you keep reading, and I'm going to jump there for the last five minutes. In the beginning of chapter 16, they, they read this letter. They go back to the churches. The churches are encouraged. They find great grace in this. Grace has prevailed against the heresy. Grace has prevailed against the cultural differences. They're going to be sent out again, and we're going to talk about something. We're going to skip something this week, but you get to the first part, chapter 16. You find Paul taking a new man with him on his journey, Timothy. And they're, they're headed out in chapter 16, the first three verses. It says that Paul actually did what? He circumcised Timothy. So Paul takes this new man who's going to go with him and so much good comes from Timothy and we'll talk about that next week. So much good comes from this new pairing between Paul and Timothy. But Timothy has a Jewish mother and grandmother and a Gentile dad. And for the Jewish people, the lineage was traced to the mom, not the dad. So what should have happened is that Timothy should have been circumcised when he was a little boy like the rest of the Jewish boys, but his dad was a Gentile, so he didn't allow that in his home. So Paul and Timothy are going to go minister in a predominantly Jewish context. And what's going to happen is the validity of Timothy's word and the validity of Timothy's character and the validity of Timothy's testimony is going to be challenged because he's not circumcised. And so here's what Paul says. Do you need to be circumcised to be a Christian? No. But as a matter of strategy, Timothy, sorry, buddy. <laughs> We're going to have to make this a, necessity for you. Timothy's circumcision wasn't a matter of theology and it wasn't a matter of situational ethics. It was a matter of strategic prudence. See, the Apostle Paul, and you'll read throughout the letters and we'll get into it more next week, whenever something outside of Jesus Christ himself gets promoted to the message of essential, then Paul just gets ugly. He gets ugly. He will fight tooth and nail to make sure that nothing gets exalted to the place of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection in our place. Outside of that, I mean, he's free to do whatever. And so for the sake of the message and the ministry amongst these people, Paul had Timothy circumcised. He wasn't undermining the message. He wasn't denying the message of the council. He was actually living in freedom. Timothy didn't have to be circumcised to be saved, but it was wise for him to be circumcised 
for the sake of being heard by these Jewish brethren. It was prudence, not necessity. And that's the place where we need to be wise. We need to be on guard in our relationships with one another, in the conversations that we have, in the things we read, in the things we teach. We need to be wise and make sure that we're not elevating to the place of necessity that which is anything other than Jesus himself. And where something isn't necessary, where it's not faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we need to be careful that we're living in charity to one another, that we're being sensitive to the conscience of one another, that we're sensitive to not take what we understand to be a freedom or what we understand to be a constraint as a response to the gospel and putting that on someone else. We need to be on guard to preserve the unity that the gospel has produced in a church like this, where people have come together from backgrounds so varied that have nothing, nothing in common with one another other than the gospel itself. God's grace is unbelievably tenacious. Unbelievably tenacious. It has set out from his hand to produce men and women who are transformed worshipers of his son from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it will happen. There's no heresy that can overwhelm it. There's no cultural imperialism that can topple it. There's no argument that can defeat it. What we need to see is to not only recognize it, but begin to taste the reality of it. And to allow the tenacity of God and his grace to encourage our souls to stand strong in the face of messages that contradict it. To hold tight to it when we're tempted to believe something else is necessary for God to approve of us. When our souls are bowed low to the dust and we feel like we've offended God and now he's looking to destroy us. And I know you know what that feels like. We need to hold fast and take courage from the tenacity of his grace that has brought us to himself through his son. And we need to be comforted by his grace that allows us to live in perfect freedom in unity with one another. And we're going to talk more about the next couple of weeks, but I want to pray for us right now, and then we'll celebrate the climax of God's grace for us in the cross as we take communion. Father, thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that your word opens up for us your grace and your gospel. The message that has your power to transform our life, to bring you glory, and to bring us joy. Lord, we ask that you do what only you can do by your spirit and you open up our ears to hear when you help us to see the beauty of your son. We ask this for your namesake.